0: Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing a personal story of empowerment over depression. I had severe depression in my late teens and early 20s. If you're just getting to know me, you might not know a lot of my backstory. I've been a professional psychotherapist since 2006. I have focused on the specialties of addiction, trauma, and grief and loss, which led me to highly sensitive people as a specialty. Important backstory summary on me is that my sexual abuse memories as a child were repressed in the classical clinical definition of repression. Now that means that I didn't know what was happening to me even as it was happening to me. It's a wild thing even still to me that our psychology can do this. I had absolutely no conscious idea that I was being sexually abused while it was happening or a few years later. I moved out in October of my senior year of high school. When I go back and try to do a timeline of my life, some of it can be a little off. Each time I sit down to do it, all the details are there, or most of the details are there, but it's a little bit off, and it's important that I name that because I know that if you have some severe childhood trauma history, or maybe not even that severe, that this is the nature of abusive memories plus time, plus dissociation, plus fragmentation that happens with trauma. And it makes it really hard to trust the information that our own minds give us as we're recovering from these types of traumas. When memories flooded back, I was 22 years old. It was three weeks before getting married, and I'm being generous when I describe this person as a narcissist. But he tried to initiate sex with me very normally, as couples might do, in the middle of the night. And I was still very sleepy and kind of out of it. And that was similar to how my abuse happened, with an abuser creeping into my room while I was sleeping in the middle of the night. My abuse started at about 12 or 13. I can't quite nail that down. And it wouldn't be until a decade later, at 22, that the memories came back. Now, this is where my story gets a little hippy-dippy. This is the intuitive in me. This is the super empath that I am. But I didn't know this at the time. I didn't have words for it. These are just things that I felt. In piecing back why my memories came back at that time, I believe it was spiritual. And it only made sense to me much later. I believe my memories came back to me either the day or the same week that my sibling conceived her first child, which would have been the next generation of children to get abused in my family had something not shifted and changed. Little sidebar is it, it wasn't till I had other experiences with women in my life and their pregnancies that I realized that I was having some sort of intuition about pregnant people in my world I know things when someone is pregnant, and sometimes it doesn't make sense to me. Like, I've encouraged a friend of mine to drink a lot of water in a way that felt weird and controlling and absurd for me to tell her, but later we found out I was having those feelings the week she conceived her child. This was the start of my own psyche telling me the truth about myself so that I could start to really deal with it intuitively i knew at the time that my household was exceptionally toxic but i couldn't put my finger on why even the average non-highly sensitive person would comment on my mother's energy that to even to other people she felt cold or scary or mean and the contrast is that my abuser my step adoptive dad was too nice too warm too handsy This episode is about severe depression. Now, I'm saying severe because most of the depression that we see and most of the depression that the population experiences is not severe. Now, that's not me going, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, my depression is worse than your depression. I win the depression game. I want you to understand that severe depression affects people in terms of how they move their bodies. In severe depression, people can sometimes barely move. So most of the depression that we talk about is, oh, somebody has depression, is more of a moderate depression. Owning that we have the power to keep subsequent depressive episodes at bay is a controversial thing for me to say and can get spun into blaming the victim. And if you or anyone goes that route now, listening to me or ever, I challenge that it's a victim mentality, playing the tiny violins. And depression gremlins love that vibe because it digs at the depression hole deeper if we feel wounded and misunderstood. No one understands how dark my depression can be. It's very woe is me, tiny violins, singing the victim song. I am not now or ever blaming the victim for depression or any symptoms that they may experience or anything that's happened to a survivor. It's not about blaming. It's about empowering victims to take charge of themselves. And because I myself have suffered from severe clinical depression, I feel that I can step into that space a little bit with some authority, not just as a professional, but as a person about the ways that Our mental health system, to me, in large part, has missed some very important things when it comes to depression. And in trying to minimize stigma, I think, accidentally has allowed for a very woe-is-me victim mentality around depression, and that just doesn't heal it for people. Now, I'm about to talk about the medication I take or do not take, You haven't heard me do that yet because that's kind of a risky thing for me to do. My fear in doing that is that someone will just throw their medication out the window. I do not take any medications from big pharma to manage myself and have it in many, many years. And I'm asking that anyone who is on medication or who knows someone who is on medication does not misconstrue what I'm saying. I am not an anti-med advocate. I am a low-medication advocate. I am a medication-at-last-resort-after-lifestyle-changes advocate. Because I'm a believer in what I've seen in my work versus what I was taught by the medical community. I'm a believer that lifestyle change is necessary. In some ways, I can make the arguments that lifestyle change is necessary for every American in existence. We live stressed we live exhausted we live too fast paced we live this justified workaholic existence We put our kids into way too many activities and never allow them to be bored Things that are very important to development When it comes to mental health, I think lifestyle change is essential And often blown off as not that important Cognitive therapy is essential When it comes to our mental health, changing the stories in our heads, letting go of the critical voice, how many of you listening are recovering from having one or two or more if you have blended families? Critical parents. We have to work to get that critical voice to shut up, to back up, to stop driving the bus of our life. Mindset motivation is necessary to move forward and feel a sense of purpose and power in life, which are opposite forces of depression. I'm talking about this now because the circumstances of this year are ripe to send unprecedented masses of people into depression. The country is facing loss of income, loss of jobs, loss of connections, loss of socializing, and that was already precarious for younger generations who hide behind tech there's the loss of normalcy of routine of going to school there's a loss of autonomy there's a loss of tradition for our adults and for our children in this country we've lost the ability to congregate and celebrate on a daily and a weekly and a monthly basis This year, we've lost being able to say goodbye to our dead and gather and support each other and say goodbye and have funeral services. We are also inundated with constant fear stoked by media and government about damn near everything without any counterbalancing efforts. Imagine how different the current climate might be if the news and social media algorithms had to show each of us as much positivity as negativity and as much empowerment as disempowerment, as much solution as problem. But that's not the way it works. If I made it out of my severe depression years, I know that anyone can. And it is extremely depressing to feel desperate enough to go to the doctor and ask for medication And then have a medication that eh, doesn't really work or gives massive depressive side effects like low sex drive or gaining weight or ladies making our hair thin and brittle. I'm just going to reiterate this. Do not misconstrue anything that I'm saying and change your meds yourself. If you see the need for a change, do it the right way. And normally you wouldn't hear me say it that way. It's very black and white. There are many right ways. But in this way, when I say to you, you know what the right way is to do that. It's to talk to a pharmacist. It's to talk to a doctor. Or it's to get a new doctor to help you with that if you have one that won't listen. To help you understand why you're on what you're on or to help make the decision to either taper or change. But we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater as the saying says to not reduce or eliminate or change your meds the right way is to invite the gremlins of depression because it will throw your system out of whack and we're trying to stabilize and balance. We don't need to be thrown. We don't need to be out of whack on the healing path. So I want to set the stage to explain to you what it was like to go through this depression. And I don't know what will come out of it for you in listening to my story, but I know there's something healing in just sharing a story. I had been abandoned by my biological father and my new super sweet, overly nice, overly involved, overly interested in me, stepdad marries my mom when I'm 12. He came into the picture when I was about 10. And there had been a constant tension since I was born between my mom and my birth father. They had a War of the Roses, seven year long, dragged out divorce without having really any assets, which is ridiculous. And then I went to living with my grandparents and my mother. And I felt their deep tension as a little empath. I had night terrors. I was angry. I was confused. I felt the resentment of my grandparents that they had for my mother because my mom kept bringing men in and out of the lives of three little girls who had been abandoned by their father. I know looking back that my grandparents felt that something was off with my then stepfather. Looking back, I know that they had really no idea or no tools about how to name that or how to confront it my stepdad would eventually manipulate me into asking him to adopt me. That's an interesting grooming story in and of itself I might share one day.
1: Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about pivotal moments in history? If so, then try my new podcast, Calm History. It's a time machine of tranquility filled with immersive, Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to CalmHistory.com.
0: So I'm a little kid. I'm trying to figure things out. I'm experiencing all the grooming. And he moves us away from my grandparents about 40 minutes away. And that's what abusers do. They find reasonable ways to isolate victims from supports. So he starts molesting me at 12 to 13 and I repress it. And here's what's fascinating about repression. I needed it. Repression saved me from myself. I had never thought of this question until a therapist asked me in a workshop. I was teaching other therapists about high sensitivity and really those were the first places I started crossing all those boundaries that therapists are taught about using my own story to help teach and I thought it was smartest and safest for me to start doing that in professional circles so I could see how therapists reacted to me before bringing my story to the public. The man who asked me had been a school counselor He was very fatherly and he was increasingly upset by my story. I could tell like it was kicking up things for him that he wanted to protect me. He was angry that no one had stepped in and protected me. He asked me, had I gone to the school counselor since he was a school counselor? But my memories were repressed. Even if someone had asked me directly, Nikki, is anyone sexually abusing you? Is anyone touching you inappropriate? I would have sworn on a Bible No, no, no. I had no idea. Repression is not a conscious thing that I did to push it down. You know how your computer goes into sleep mode to reserve energy? It's almost like that, that our minds can decide, oh, you know what? Mm, She can't really handle this right now, so we're just going to go into sleep mode while this abuse is happening. And she can deal with this later. So that school counselor who had also been a coach and he happened to be the counselor at my rival high school. that was just across the way. And he asked me why I thought my abuse memories were repressed when my siblings did not experience repression. And I had to tell the workshop participants, I've never thought about that before. I need to take a minute. And I was silent for about two minutes and being silent for two whole minutes standing in front of a group of professionals was still very uncomfortable for me. It felt like a thousand hours of silence. And then it just hit me in an intuitive way. And this is the truth of it. And this maybe is something that might be surprising. If you're a very gentle, highly sensitive person, if you're not sensation-seeking, If you're not really connected to your inner fighter and it's more comfortable for you to go passive than to fight, this might be a surprising thing to hear from me. The truth is, if my memories hadn't been repressed, if I'd consciously known, I would have immediately gone to both of my sisters and checked on them. I had absolutely no idea how to protect myself back then. And that's true for so many people that are listening that grew up in dysfunctional families, especially if you're the eldest sibling or took that role as the eldest sibling. Not knowing how to protect myself, but I would have done anything to have protected other people, especially my siblings. And yes, that is codependency. It's where it starts, it's why it starts when we can care for others, but we don't know how to care for ourselves. If I'd have known consciously at any point, I would have committed violent acts against my parents. And that is not a boast. That is not me saying, I need this audience to see me as some kind of bad bitch. That's not what that is. It's just the truth of who I was born to be. I'm, I have a lot of protector in me, and I have a lot of fighter in me. And I very much believe that had I known consciously, I would have committed violent acts and I'd be in prison right now, not doing this healing work for myself and not doing this healing work on this podcast, not being a therapist in this life. Now I know how to protect myself above all else. Now I know how to embody the job description of a healthy human being. Now I know how to give myself permission to protect me. I wonder sometimes if people hear me advertising my boundaries course and think or make the assumption that that's about, oh, having boundaries and keeping all this tender sensitivity in and keeping the harshness of the world out. Surely that's part of it, but it's not all of it. My boundaries really developed for me out of a sense of rage and injustice. And I needed to have boundaries with myself so that I would not act out from that rageful place. In recovery, we can often mistakenly believe that boundaries are about shaking our finger at somebody else and telling them what the line is. The boundaries work that I've done and that I teach is about helping find those emotional boundaries internally so that we don't self-sabotage so that we don't screw ourselves over, so that we can meet our higher selves' goals and purpose. This is going to sound like a funny segue, but do you have any awareness of how Beyonce uses her alter ego, Sasha Fierce? She used to put on her performance self, Sasha, to get past her shyness, her reservation, to be able to shift from a woman who goes to the grocery store to the powerful, sexy woman on stage that commands an audience of thousands. I believe sensitive people do a similar thing all the time without knowing or without naming a part of themselves Sasha Fierce. I had a work persona. It was like a work hat that I could put on, my own form of Sasha Fierce, work Nikki. And I could drag myself through my deeply physical depression to work. Now that was fear-driven because I needed rent money and food money. So the stress of that was keeping my body in a survival mode. We talk about that as if it's all bad. I needed that to get through. That was my body doing the best it could do for me. I could drag myself to school. I had such an achiever part of me and a perfectionist that didn't feel worthwhile unless I was performing and achieving at school. There are consequences to that, but it also helped me grow my life. It helped me invest as difficult as it was, as exhausting as it was, as much as I would cry and feel broken and empty. It gave me a stability. It gave me a path And it kept me going. And somehow I finished my first psychology degree, even though I slept through almost every single college class I took. And I was throwing tons of caffeine and random diet pills into the mix back then. I was trying to make my body perform when it was exhausted in every way. Severe depression means that every system in a body was depressed. If you've ever gone to the doctor when you've had a sore throat, the doctor uses a tongue depressor to press down on the tongue to see behind it. Depression presses down on us in a similar way. And I didn't understand what was wrong with me back then because my abuse memories were still repressed. Back then, I thought of and judged my mom as a cold bitch and I felt tremendous guilt that I was, I fe- that I felt so worthless in mind, body, spirit, and effort every single day of my life. I thought, yeah, my mom's a bitch, but this is too much of a reaction in me. I judged myself, not understanding that those judgments were the food that the depression gremlins eat. And the fatter those little bastards get, the more they could hold me down sit on me. Depress me. They wanted to devour me into oblivion. I pulled off school and work. At the time, I was working 60 to 70 hours a week as a waitress. I'd get to work at six in the morning to work a breakfast and lunch shift and then go to three-hour classes at night. If I had two classes, it would be six hours of classes, back-to-back three-hour classes. When I'd get home at night in my teeny tiny one-bedroom apartment, I collapsed. Now, I don't mean I walked in, I dropped all my things, and oh, exhausting day, collapse on the bed. I meant that my key went into the door, I would open the door, walk in, shut the door, and slide my back down the door. It would take me hours to move ten steps to get to the little bitty galley kitchen to get a sip of water it's not an exaggeration i remember sitting and willing my body to move sometimes tears streaming down my face begging my leg to move begging my arms to help push me up if i had to go to the bathroom it was the same this was not about my will to do it I willed it. I begged it. I bargained with it. I pleaded. Because once I walked back into that apartment, I wasn't work Nikki. I wasn't school Nikki. That Sasha Fierce persona left. And I was just me. And the me that I knew felt irreparably broken. Which might be one of the most depressive thoughts we can think and hold and feel. I sought counseling at school before I was even in the counseling program. And I remember having no idea I was an empath or that anything like that can be real or valid. I remember feeling that my story, even before I knew I was abused, scared the hell out of that therapist. I know now, but I didn't know then, that she could only be very textbook with me. Someone was observing her and watching her. It was part of her graduate program. So she gave me very traditional counseling, how did that make you feel questions, and just reflected a whole lot of my pain back at me. Wow, that sounds hard. That's a big struggle. You must be strong. It's okay to be sad, but no real guidance. No real challenging to my thinking. No real encouragement that I could be different. Just come to disappointment and pour yourself out and then leave and then come back and pour yourself out again. That process added a layer of depression. I've often wondered how many people quit therapy or worse, quit life after seeking any form of help from any form of health practitioner mental or otherwise, and feel the professional basically shit their pants because of the weight of the client's story. It was taught to me that it's ethical for a counselor to tell a client, a client like I was, in a first session or in subsequent sessions, as soon as the professional knows that they're out of their scope to pass the client on to someone else. That's ethics. Don't take somebody that you don't want to work with And that you'd feel like you can't work with and can't really help. Doesn't that sound great on paper? It sounds right. But it's not always handled well. And it's often felt by the survivor of a deeply dysfunctional family that their brokenness is astronomical and beyond repair. So much so that this professional can't handle it. Imagine feeling irreparably broken while reaching for help from experts who are expected to know how to help the broken. I felt absolutely out of my mind and out of my body. I was so out of my body during the severe depression that walking through doorways, I'd bust myself up. When you hear someone say, oh, I'm disconnected from my body, I'm out of body. I would, with my eyeballs, just like we all do, judge a doorway and try to walk through the center of it. I was so disconnected from myself that I would walk straight into the side of a doorway, bust up my shoulders, bust up my arms, bust up my knees, bust up my legs. During these years of severe depression, I lost count about how many people approached me, people who didn't know me, and would say, honey, is anybody beating you? Because they saw so many bruises on my body. And no one was beating me. I would fall downstairs frequently. I have a story about I fell up the stairs at a job interview, rammed a wall, sat through it, survival mode, got the job, then left and went to the hospital with a concussion. Even my digestion was depressed, constipated, stuck, reflecting how I really felt about my life. My life felt surrounded by shit and stuck I was 30 pounds overweight in the years to follow I would add extra 20 to that for a good 50 pounds overweight when everything feels heavy we tend to get heavy no medication saved me and I tried many some took the edge off most just gave me awful crazy making depressing side effects I didn't start to come out of it till the repressed memories let go and showed me why I felt how I felt. When my ex tried to initiate sex with me that night, those feelings flooded back to me. That is the clinical term, flooded. If you've ever seen any movie scene where someone is drowning, that first gulp of air once they break the surface, that desperate breath of air, That's the feeling of my memories coming back. I was flooded and choking and crying and discombobulated. And I struggled to catch my breath. Now I know this was my intuition. I couldn't explain it very well to people at the time. I just kept saying, I know this is real. I didn't have one second of questioning. Is this a dream? Did I make this up? A lot of survivors struggle with that. Because it feels so real, so we wonder if it was real. If we leave our bodies when we're abused, it's also hard to be there to know what happened. I knew it was real. It was my intuition. From this knowing, I acted, and it was scary. I invited both my parents over and confronted them. Hi, y'all. So I'm doing something I've never done before. I'm breaking into my own episode. Now, I just couldn't condense this story into my 15 to 30-minute episodes that I really like to give you on this podcast stream. So what we're doing is we're breaking it up, and we're putting the second half of this episode on our Patreon. But this episode, you won't have to pay anything. This episode will be available on the free portion of our Patreon And then if you're there and you want to check out any of our other content, that would greatly help us meet our next goal of 250 Patreon participants. Yes, shameless plug. We want you to come to Patreon. Now, this episode, I think it's important. I think it's an important piece of work. I think depression is going to be huge this year, and that's unfortunate and a little scary. So I'm trying my best to talk more about it. So yes, we want you to go to our patreon.com backslash emotional badass Y'all are the producers of the show. Y'all keep the show commercial-free. We don't want to, and we never have wanted to add commercials, so thank you, Patreon people. Y'all make that possible, and keep the energy and the vibe of the show as it is. So if you're interested in hearing the second half of this episode, come find us at patreon.com backslash emotional badass. And little quick plug for the Boundaries course. It's coming up quickly. If you want the biggest discount code, it's available at Patreon. If you're a Patreon producer of the show, the early bird discount code has one more week. It ends September 27th. So if you want to pay for the course in full, you can get a large discount by using early bird 2020 as the discount code. Or this year, you can choose a 3-, 6-, or 12-month payment plan, which makes the course as affordable as I possibly can. I'm not a pushy salesman. I don't email you 10,000 times. I don't create fear of missing out so that you'll jump on. I don't create a sense of lack saying that spots are filling up. If you resonate with my work, you are invited to sign up. I don't need to sell you on that. Your intuition knows if you're supposed to do that work with me or not. If you feel like you're here for that work, come sign up. I can't wait to do the boundaries course this year with you guys. It starts October 19th. I'm sending light and love out to all of you. I hope you are upping your self-care game and keeping all the depression gremlins at bay. Light and love, and I'll see you on Patreon. I'm an emotional badass, you're an emotional badass, and together we are where Moxie meets mindful. Bye-bye.
1: dot com.